Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. <laughs> Good evening and welcome to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Joshua Martinez. Uh, I'm a member of the KIPP SoCal Teaching and Learning Team, uh, a former English uh, language arts fourth grade teacher, and a winner of the TNTP 2017 uh, Freshman Prize uh, for teaching. Uh, I have the pleasure of, of being your moderator for tonight's discussion. We are pleased to have Natalie Wexler here tonight to speak on her new book, The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of Americans' Broken Education System and How to Fix It, in which she chronicles the impact, especially on underserved children, of an elementary education where she says comprehension is mistakenly seen as a matter of building generic skills, overlooking the essential need to build actual knowledge. Ms. Wexler documents how school can lead to apathy as a result and how measures of reading comprehension remain stagnant or have even declined. Beyond diagnosing the problem, Ms. Wexler showcases innovative educators who she says are bringing real learning into the classroom. She challenges all of us to think beyond the typical excuses of failing schools and consider the need for a knowledge-rich curriculum that exposes children to broad vocabulary and stories that build upon each other. A senior contributor to Forbes.com, Ms. Wexler's writing has appeared in the New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Washington Post. She's also the author, or co-author, of The Writing Revolution, a guide to advancing thinking through writing in all subjects and grades. Following Ms. Wexler's remarks, we will be joined by two distinguished panelists to discuss how we address the knowledge gap. Finally, I'd like to offer a word of thanks to the Commonwealth Club member and supporter, Arthur Rock, for sponsoring tonight's event. Please join me in welcoming Ms. Natalie Wexler. Well, I'm really thrilled to be here, um, and I'm thrilled to see you all here to, to talk about an issue that I think um, whose importance cannot be overstated and which has been really overlooked. But I'd like to begin by just explaining how I came across this issue and how I came to write the book, The Knowledge Gap. Um, so about maybe almost 10 years ago now, I got very interested in education. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. There was a lot of education reform activity going on there. And it seemed to me incredibly important. Um, it seemed to me that if we are going to break the cycle of multi-generational poverty and advance social justice and equity in society, that it, fixing our education system is, was key. Um, because, as you may be aware, there, there is a, a gap uh, in educational achievement, usually as measured by test scores. It's often called the achievement gap. Basically between wealthy kids, kids from wealthy families on the one hand, and kids from lower income families on the other. And this gap has either grown significantly over the past 40 or 50 years, Depending on which group of scholars you talk to, it's either grown maybe as much as by as much as 75% or best case scenario, it's just stayed the same for the past 50 years. Um, and this is true of overall achievement. It's not like all boats are rising. Um, if you look at what at 17 year olds and what they've accomplished, the overall level of achievement has basically, basically stayed the same for 50 years, and the gap has stayed the same or gotten worse. 
Um, in fact, um, we have some recent information that from national tests in reading, um, there's something called the National Assessment of Educational Progress, which are reading and math tests that are given every two years, basically to fourth and eighth graders. And reading scores have been stagnant since 1998. This year, that situation changed, but not for the better. This year, there was a significant decline, especially at the eighth grade level, and a, gap, a widening in the gap between high scorers and low scorers. So what's going on here? Um, it, it's not as though we don't spend money on education. We spend over $600 billion a year on K-12 through education. And obviously, there are different school districts spend different amounts of money, but other countries get better results on international tests that, that spend less per pupil than we do. So I got very interested in this issue, um, and it was also really intellectually fascinating. And there was this one mystery that I, I couldn't resolve. So as part of a group of sort of education reformers in D.C., and also as a journalist writing about education reform in D.C., I would go on school tours. I would go to panel discussions. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. And on these tours of model classrooms, we would go into elementary school classrooms, and things looked pretty good. The kids were engaged and eager. The test scores seemed to be going up slightly. And I was told this, this is where good things were happening, was at the elementary level. Go into some middle school classrooms, and things were a little rougher. The scores were not increasing as much, but it seems like there would, there seemed there was some movement, some progress. But then we'd go into high school classrooms and even the model high school classrooms that they showed us were sometimes there would be not just one kid with his head on a desk, but several, or there'd be very few students who would come to class. And the test scores were stagnant and low, and there was a huge gap between higher and lower income students. And so the question in my mind, and not just in mine, and the question in the minds of most education reformers for a long time now has been, what's the matter with high school? Why does the progress we seem to be making in elementary school come to nothing at the high school level? And I don't have time to tell you everything, all the steps in this process. I basically, I didn't solve this mystery by myself. I wish I could say that I put on my thinking cap. And, but basically what happened was somebody, a veteran educator, explained something to me that made me realize that what I had been told was the bright spot in education, what everybody thought was the bright spot, elementary school, was really where the, the root of the problems that we see in high school lies. Um, so what do I mean? Well, we spend a lot of time in elementary school on reading. We always have, and that makes sense, right? Kids need to learn to read. But there are two components of reading that are quite different. Um, so the, the first that I'll mention is decoding, which is word recognition, sounding out words. And that should be taught as a set of skills, foundational reading skills, phonemic awareness, which is hearing the sounds, individual sounds in words, phonics, which is uh, blending those sounds, connecting them to letters, fluency, doing that at a fast enough pace so that you can actually understand what you're reading. Now, there are huge problems with the way we teach decoding in this country. Um, 
But I'm not going to talk about those tonight because there were also huge problems with the way we teach the other component of reading, which is comprehension. And that's what I'm going to focus on tonight. So I'm going to assume that we're talking about kids who can decode pretty fluently. So how do we teach decoding in this country pretty universally? Well, we teach it as with what I said about decoding. We teach comprehension as though it were a set of skills, skills and strategies. And I I won't go into the difference between skills and strategies because most teachers use those terms interchangeably. And as you can see, this is just something I found online, but this is a list of reading comprehension skills and strategies. So for example, identify the main idea and details, determine author's purpose on the skills side, strategies, make connections, ask questions. And so the, the theory is that the teacher will teach these skills directly to students and they will practice the skills on books at their own individual reading level. So periodically teachers test kids, and this goes on through middle school often, where in schools where test scores are low, um, they'll, they'll give kids brief reading comprehension tests to determine their individual reading level. And this is a, an alphabetical A to Z um, chart. So a kid might, be, might test at a level L, which is a second grade level, but that child might actually be in fifth or sixth grade. So your reading, individual reading level could be years behind your uh, grade level. And these levels are determined basically by things like word length, sentence length, nothing to do with the content of what kids are reading. Similarly, with the skills, Teachers will um, ha you often have a skill of the week that they're going to focus on, and they will choose a book to read to the class based not on the content of the book or the topic of the book, but how well the book appears to lend itself to demonstrating the skill of comparing and contrasting or whatever. And then the students scatter essentially to practice their, that skill on books at their individual reading levels. So if you're a level L, you'll be directed to a basket of level L books. And again, they're not organized by topic or by what their content is. They're organized by these sort of, these measures of text complexity that have nothing to do with the topic. So kids are jumping around maybe from one topic to another or they're reading um, fiction. Um, and the theory is that if, you, if you're a level L and you diligently practice your comprehension skills, you will advance up the ladder of text complexity and you'll eventually get to where you need to be. And the other part of the theory is that if you get really good at, you know, finding the main idea, you'll be able to apply that skill to pretty much any text that's put in front of you. So to um, a reading passage on a standardized reading test at the end of the year or to a textbook that you're going to get in high school. If you can find the main idea of a second grade book, you'll be good at finding the main idea. You'll be able to find the main idea of a textbook on world history or whatever. So let's, um, let's test out that theory. I'm just going to show you a paragraph from a newspaper, and I'm going to ask you if to find the main idea. Ready? All right, I'll give you a minute. Oh. 
So yes, I should read this out loud, I suppose, because not everybody, people may be listening. So much depended on the two overnight batsmen. But this duo perished either side of lunch, the latter a little unfortunate to be adjudged leg before. And with Andrew Simons, too, being shown the dreaded finger off an inside edge, the inevitable beckoned bar the pyrotechnics of Michael Clark and the ninth wicket. Anybody care to find the main idea? (laughs) Um, You may not even know what this is describing. I forgot to mention that this came from a British newspaper. And this is a description of a cricket match. And if you are a cricket fan, this... You know, you have no trouble understanding this paragraph. But if you don't know anything about the game of cricket, you're, you're in deep trouble trying to figure this out. And this is something that cognitive scientists have known about for decades, um, that the most important factor in reading comprehension is not some abstract skill in finding the main idea or making inferences. It's how much knowledge and vocabulary the reader has relating to the topic. So the iconic study along these lines was done in the late 1980s. It's called the baseball study. And two researchers decided to test out this question. What's more important, general reading comprehension skill or knowledge of the topic? And they chose the topic of baseball because they figured there are a lot of kids who know a lot about baseball who are not generally good readers. So they took a bunch of junior high school students and they divided them into four groups depending on how well they had done on a standardized reading comprehension test and how much they knew about baseball. And then they gave them a passage describing a baseball game and tested their comprehension. And what they found was that the kids who knew a lot about baseball all did quite well on this test of comprehension when the topic was baseball regardless of how well they had done on the standardized reading comprehension test. And the kids who didn't know much about baseball all did pretty poorly, again, no matter how well they did on the standardized test. So the kids who were supposedly poor readers did significantly better, uh, but if they knew a lot about baseball, than the kids who were supposedly good readers who didn't know much about baseball. So this is pretty convincing evidence that it's knowledge, it's not skill that, that really determines how well you're going to comprehend what you're reading. And this has been replicated, by the way, this study in many other contexts now. And in some ways, this may be a matter of common sense. I mean, you know, baseball knowledge is fairly specialized. Um, what, and, and you may also think it stands to reason that if you try to read the abstract of a scholarly article on a topic like molecular biology, and you don't know anything like me about molecular biology, it's going to be really tough to make sense of that abstract. What may be less obvious is how much background knowledge all of us as educated adults bring to whatever we read in the newspaper, um, or magazines, or even listening to net report, news reports on t- TV or the radio. And what's even less obvious, maybe, to educated adults is how much some children don't know about the world, about how much vocabulary and knowledge they lack about the wider world and the kind of knowledge that counts in school. Um, and, you know... Uh, illustrate this, I thought I would show you an example of a reading passage on, that appeared on a third grade 
standardized test that's given in at least a few states still. It's given in the District of Columbia still. This is a released item. And it's, I'll read that. In one of the most remote places in the world, the Canadian Arctic, a people have survived over a thousand years. They are the Inuit. For the Inuit, the Arctic is a place teeming with life. Depending on how far north they live, the Inuit find everything from caribou herds and polar bears to beluga whales. Now, that may not look too challenging. That may look pretty straightforward. But I'm going to now show you the same paragraph with the words and phrases blacked out that many third graders won't understand. Um, And it's, you know, in one of the most blank places in the world, the blank, a people have blank over a blank years. And it goes on like that. And, And really the point here is if you're missing that many words, if you don't know that many words, this is going to be as impenetrable as an abstract of an article about molecular biology would be to me. Now, some kids will know these words that are blacked out. And those tend to be kids who have more educated parents, who pick up a lot of this kind of knowledge at home. The other kids rely on school for this kind of knowledge. And unfortunately, they are the least likely to get this kind of knowledge at school. And uh, why is that? Well, especially over the last 20 years, the curriculum in elementary and sometimes middle school has narrowed considerably. Um, you know, it used to be there was reading took up a lot of time and math also took up a lot of time, but there would be social studies, the arts, science, and especially since we've had high stakes reading tests and reading and math, and especially in schools where those test scores are low, the theory has been that the way to raise those scores is to just double down on reading and math. Um, and reading generally means the reading comprehension skills and strategies that I've described. So, Social studies, the arts are the first to go. Science to a lesser extent. There may be some hands-on science once or twice a week. But really, the curriculum has largely narrowed um, to, to reading and math. And that is a problem because those subjects that have been eliminated, social studies, science, the arts, those are the subjects that have the potential to build the kind of knowledge kids need to actually understand what they read. So we've really been shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, We've been eliminating the very things that actually could help us reach our goal of getting more kids to understand what they read. Um, And it is even worse than that, actually. Um, Because knowledge doesn't just help you understand what you read. It also helps you absorb and retain what you read. The more you know about a topic, the better able you are to acquire new information about that topic. So what happens is um, the kids who start out with more knowledge and vocabulary because they've picked it up at home, they keep reading and understanding more complex text and acquiring more and more knowledge as the years go by. And the other kids who start out with less knowledge and vocabulary keep acquiring less and less because they're reading simpler text and they're not able to absorb and retain as much knowledge and if, if they're not getting their knowledge built at school. And so what you have, so the, the, the uh, metaphor for this process is that knowledge is like Velcro. It sticks best to other related knowledge And this process that I've described between kids who start out with more knowledge and those who start out with less 
has been dubbed the Matthew effect. Um, then that is a reference to the gospel of St. Matthew and particularly the line that could be read to mean uh, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And really what this means is that the longer you allow this gap, this gap in knowledge to continue unaddressed, the larger it gets and the harder it is to narrow or close. So it is really important to start giving all children access to knowledge from the very beginning of their schooling. Um, so once I stumbled on all this, um, and I, I realized that although I thought I knew a lot about education, although I'd been going to expert panel discussions and reading everything I could get my hands on, I had never heard that this was a problem or even that schools were just focusing on comprehension skills and strategies. I assumed, I, I'd been in a lot of elementary classrooms, I assumed they were actually trying to build kids' knowledge, and I realized I had not known what I was looking at, and a lot of other people hadn't either. Um, now, there was a group of people who were very concerned about this issue, and some of them are in this room. They knew about this issue long before I did, but I realized that they were essentially talking to each other. This was not getting out into the public conversation about education. And it seemed to me that what might help would be a book that um, took a journalistic approach um, and, and made this rather abstract and complicated subject more concrete and engaging through telling stories and bringing the reader into classrooms. And nobody else was writing that book. So, um, so I tried to do it. Um, and um, I have to say the response so far has been very gratifying. Um, I've been, have heard from a lot of teachers who are saying basically, thank you, because they knew something was wrong. Um, so I basically wrote this book for three reasons. One was just to describe for people like me who didn't know what was going on in elementary school classrooms and sometimes middle school classrooms, um, just to describe what this looks like. But I also wanted to know where this came from, um, this approach to reading comprehension. Because if you're, if you're not an education insider, it's kind of counterintuitive that you would like read a book about whales or whatever to a bunch of kids. And then instead of talking about whales, you would talk about, you know, the author's purpose. Or, you know, why would you do that? Um, so <laughs> I, I found that this approach actually has very deep roots going at back maybe a hundred years. Um, I don't want to lay all of the sins of modern education at the feet of John Dewey, but he is considered to be the father of the progressive education movement, or sometimes it's called the construct constructivist education movement. And um, one of the central tenets of that movement has really laid very fertile ground for this skills and strategies approach to comprehension to take root. Um, and that tenet is that it is better for children to discover or construct their own knowledge than to have a teacher stand up in front of them and just pour information into their, the passive receptacles of their brains. Um, and so teachers who are teaching reading comprehension skills and strategies can feel that they are not just pouring information or throwing information at kids. They are giving them the tools to construct their own knowledge from their own reading down the road. 
And, you know, there is some truth to this idea. We all do need to participate in constructing our own knowledge. But that's different from expecting children, especially children who don't have a lot of knowledge of topics like history and science, to discover their own information. Um, that's at best a tremendously inefficient process. Um, and, and really that's what we've been asking kids to do and it hasn't been working. Um, so that's the deep roots. And then in, in this century, um, there have been a couple of several other developments that have really intensified this approach. Um, one of them is, uh, something called the National Reading Panel Report which came out in 2000. And the National Reading Panel was this sort of was blue ribbon panel of reading experts that was really convened to end what was known as the reading wars, um, which were raging in the 1990s. Basically, they were all about how do you teach kids to decode or do you teach kids to decode? And the debate was between people who advocated systematic instruction in phonics and those who said, no, just surround kids with books and they will pick it up. And uh, the National Reading Panel came down firmly on the side of we need to teach phonics systematically. But the fifth pillar they identified, so they identified phonemic awareness, phonics, fluency, and vocabulary. Those were the first four pillars of early literacy that they uh, endorsed. And then the fifth pillar is comprehension. And that one really has backfired. Um, so the National Reading Panel did find evidence from some studies showing that teaching kids certain kinds of comprehension strategies could boost comprehension. And so this seemed to give the imprimatur of science to this approach that teachers were kind of doing anyway of teaching these comprehension skills. But there are several problems that, that led to a real misinterpretation of what the National Reading Panel report meant. And um, one is that they forgot to mention that these strategies they endorsed only work if you have enough knowledge to make sense of the text in the first place. Because these strategies that they endorsed basically consist of asking yourself questions about the text as you go along. You know, how can I relate this to things I've read before? Or how does this paragraph relate to this paragraph? If you can't understand the text, you cannot answer those questions, and so they won't help you. But there were several other problems. One is that the National Reading Panel only endorsed a handful of reading strategies, and the vast majority of what teachers concentrate on in elementary and middle schools have no evidence behind them. They were not endorsed by the National Reading Panel. But even the ones that were endorsed by the panel, those studies lasted at most six weeks. And, and some people who have looked at those studies, some cognitive scientists have looked at that studies, those studies say, even after two weeks, you really stop getting much bang for the buck in terms of boosts in reading comprehension. Um, so s the evidence shows, well, maybe six weeks is all you need, but we do this instruction in reading comprehension skills and strategies month after month, year after year. Another thing about these studies that the National Reading Panel endorsed was that they put complex text in the foreground and brought in strategies that could help kids understand the text. That's not how American teachers do this. They put the skill in the foreground. It's the skill of the week. And they bring in texts that seem to help them teach the skill. So basically, 
this gave a pretty big boost to the teaching uh, in, in teacher training institutions and ed schools. They, they expanded greatly um, their coverage of comprehension instruction and their teaching teachers. This is how you teach comprehension. And this is what the National Reading Panel endorsed. But actually, it's not. Um, and the next thing that happened um, was No Child Left Behind, which uh, came in in 2001. And No Child Left Behind made uh, reading and math tests really the yardstick by which we measure all progress in education. And I'm not against testing per se, because the benefit of these tests that NCLB introduced is that they uncovered a lot of inequities in our educational system that had been hidden. But the tests don't tell us how to address those inequities. And um, a byproduct, I think maybe an unintended consequence of making these tests so important was that, you know, teachers look at these tests and there are a bunch of passages on disconnected topics and they seem to be asking kids to do the very things that these reading comprehension skills and strategies are designed to teach. Find the main idea, make an inference. And so educators have concluded, well, the way to boost those scores is to double down on those skills, overlooking the fact that Many of the kids who are choosing B instead of C, it's not because they haven't had enough practice in finding the main idea. It's because they couldn't understand the reading passage on the test because it assumed a lot of knowledge that they didn't have. Um, So that is a a problem with the testing regime we have. And, And No Child Left Behind is gone now, but its replacement, the Every Student Succeeds Act, supposed to decrease the importance of testing, but there isn't much evidence that that's happened. So the third reason I wrote the book was, um, I'm, I'm sorry this is sounding pretty bleak so far, but the third reason I wrote the book was to ask the question, where can we go from here? How do we make this situation better? And, um, and the, the good news is there are things that are happening now that are promising. I mean, ideally, we would change the way we train teachers. Um, we would ensure that teachers have the content knowledge, that they, they acquire that content knowledge during their training that they're going to teach, and that they also learn how best to deliver that information to, to children. I think we're a long way off from that, although we'll, we'll be discussing that, I think, later. Um, but the good news is that even if teachers have not gotten that kind of training before they enter the classroom, there is a lot they can learn on the job. And um, one way they can learn that is through a good content-focused curriculum. So they, they really can learn the content along with their students. It's not ideal, but after the first year, it's, it's easier. And by the third year, they may feel pretty comfortable with it. And the good news is that in, it used to be that if you wanted to buy an elementary literacy curriculum, the only ones you could get off the shelf focused on skills. But in the last five or six years, several new elementary literacy curricula have been developed that actually focus on content and on building kids' knowledge of the world. Um, so there are a number of them. I'm just going to – there are maybe half a dozen. There's one is EL Education. ELA Guidebooks is actually something that's produced by the state of Louisiana and is available for free. Core Knowledge Language Arts um, is, is also, there's a free version of that. And Wit and Wisdom. And these curricula, and there are a couple of others, these curricula differ in the 
particular knowledge that they cover and in the particular way they have teachers deliver information. Um, but the, there are two things that they all have in common. One, as I mentioned, is that they are organized by topic uh, or at least theme rather than skill. And they spend at least a couple of weeks on a topic, which gives kids a chance to actually absorb the, the information and vocabulary that goes with it. And the second characteristic they all have is that they have teachers reading aloud to children from texts that those kids could not read themselves. And that's important for two reasons. One is written language is almost always more complex than spoken language. And if kids are someday going to be able to understand written language on their own when they are able to read sophisticated text, they need to have heard those conventions that do not appear in spoken language. The second reason is that kids' listening comprehension exceeds their reading comprehension on average through middle school. So they can take in more sophisticated concepts and vocabulary through listening and discussion than they can through their own reading, really for, for quite a while. So we shouldn't stop reading aloud to kids as soon as they can decode. Um, so that is... Um, a tremendously important thing to do. And it also creates a classroom community that this, this system of leveled reading works against. That system of leveled reading, really what it is, is tracking in elementary school. Um, and uh, it, it, it's, you know, that somebody has said, Alfred Tatum, a reading expert, leveled reading leads to leveled lives. So we need to get away from that. Um, so just uh, the last thing I'll tell you about the book is that um, kind of as an afterthought, I decided to follow two classrooms through a school year, one using a skills-focused curriculum, the standard approach, and the other using one of these newer content-focused curricula. And I'm really glad I thought of that. I, actually, I didn't. My publisher said to me, so you'll need a narrative arc. And I said, oh, of, of course. <laughs> Um, and then I came up with this idea of following two classrooms. And I think it was the most illuminating research I did. And I think it may be the most powerful part of the book because these two classrooms were like night and day. Now, they weren't identical classrooms. Um, one was a first grade classroom, one was a second grade classroom. Um, no two classrooms are identical. But all of the children in both of these classrooms came from low-income families. They were all students of color. And the teachers in both of these classrooms were both hardworking, dedicated, smart teachers. The reason these classrooms were so different, really, was the curriculum. Um, and I, I wish I could show you videos of what the curriculum what, what, what these discussions were like in each of these classrooms. But um, what I can show you is posters that I saw on the wall there. And in the skills-focused classroom, the posters were all about skills. Like this one is about main idea. There's an oval in the middle and two little legs for detail. Um, and the, the kids were really not that interested in talking about main idea or talking about sequence of events or what the difference is between a caption and a subtitle. They, you know, they wanted to the, know what was going on in the picture. You know, what's that shark eating? Is that the moon or is it Mars? And the teacher kept trying to redirect their attention to the caption because that's what she was trying to teach. That's considered to be a nonfiction reading skill, identifying captions. Um, the kids just couldn't have cared less. Uh, and in the other classroom... 
um, there were the, the room was a riot of posters packed with information about the read-alouds that the kids had been were listening to every day. This poster is on the Hindu uh, holiday Diwali, and this was when they were studying ancient Indian civilization. Um, and the, the, these posters would be filled in collaboratively by the, the teacher and students during and after the read-aloud. Um, so, but but I'd like to, and the, and the kids had these wonderful discussions, not only of about Diwali, and about enlightenment and Buddhism, um, about strategy at the Battle of Thermopylae, about whether Alexander the Great's ambitious nature was a, a, a benefit or a flaw. I mean, you know, they had a lot to say, these second graders. Um, and they were fascinated by historical topics that many elementary school teachers think are inappropriate, developmentally inappropriate for young kids. But these kids were on the edge of their seats when they were learning about the War of 1812 because they wanted to find out who was going to win, the British or the Americans. So, you know, I mean, to withhold this from kids is really makes no sense. But the other thing I just want to point out about on this poster, you see some vocabulary words like customs, protector of the universe, defeat, uh, evil demon. And, and when I had lunch, and these kids were absorbing this kind of vocabulary, when I had lunch with a group of them in March, um, and I just wanted to talk to them about what they were learning, and they were so proud of all that they knew. And they were just, they kept interrupting each other because they kept wanting to tell me, and everybody wanted to tell me stuff. But what really struck me was the vocabulary they were using. Now, these kids, most of them came from non-English speaking families, and some of them were still learning English themselves. But in their conversation, they were using words like revenge, opponent, labyrinth. And these are words they're not even going to see on a third or fourth grade standardized reading comprehension test. But these words will lodge in their long-term memories and will serve them very well when they get to high school and beyond. Um, So I just want to end with a story um, you know, some, sometimes teachers are skeptical, understandably, about this new approach to teaching reading comprehension because it goes against everything they've been trained to do and everybody that they know has been telling them, you know, if you want to boost reading comprehension, you got to work on these skills. But when I was out in Reno, uh, Nevada, doing some research for the book, I heard a story about a second grade teacher whose school had adopted one of these new content-focused curricula. And she was kind of not sure about it, but she was giving one of these reading comprehension tests one day. She was determining a kid's individual reading level, and this boy was described to me as just struggling like crazy. He was at the very low end of second grade in terms of reading level, um, and it was about three quarters of the way through the school year. But the teacher, and you know, he was struggling with, with the second grade texts that the teacher was giving him, but she, she noticed she, get, she got a kit with texts at various levels. And in this kit, this testing kit, there was a text on westward expansion, which happened to be the subject that the class had just spent two weeks learning about. And so, but this text was at a fourth grade level, and this kid was struggling second grade reader. But just out of curiosity, she gave him the Westward Expansion text, and he read it with 100% comprehension and 98% accuracy. And she was sold on this approach. And, you know, um, there are untold numbers of teachers like that teacher before she gave this kid this test who are underestimating the capabilities of their students 
And even worse, there are untold numbers of kids who have been told, if you just practice these comprehension skills diligently on texts that are easy for you to read, you'll get to be a better reader. And when that doesn't happen, they often feel they have no one to blame but themselves. Uh, And what that does to a kid's self-image and self-concept is really troubling, um, and it's totally unnecessary. There's tremendous untapped potential out there, and all we need to do to tap into it is start teaching kids stuff. So I will stop there. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. Learn about our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for any of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now back to our program. Our thanks to Natalie Wexler, uh, author of Education, uh, sorry, author of uh, the Knowledge Gap and the Hidden Cause of American's Broken uh, Education System and How to Fix It. Um, we're now also joined by two other distinguished panelists. Um, Katie Haycock is the founder and president emeritus of the Education Trust, based in Washington D.C., an organization dedicated to high achievement for all students, particularly those of color or living in poverty. And Kate Walsh, who is the president of the National Council on Teacher Quality an organization dedicated to greater transparency and higher standards for all institutions that impact teacher effectiveness. Kate is also the reason we are here tonight. Having read Natalie's book, Kate decided as many people as possible need to know about these findings, which led to this evening's discussion. Welcome, everyone. So I've worked um, as I was a teacher for, uh, for 10 years in East L.A. Um, I... Um, and uh, trying to address these issues that, uh, that Natalie described here. And, and so I'm very interested to hear what our guests Katie and, uh, and Kate Walsh um, have to say on this. And so, um, Katie, would you start? Sure, absolutely. <clears throat> Good evening, all of you. Um, so Natalie talks a little bit about sort of the data on reading achievement. And I want to spend a little more time on that because um, – I want you to feel the same kind of urgency that that uh, she does and certainly that I do about the need to to get this right. Um, <clears throat> what those of you who can see the screen are are seeing are reading achievement levels at the fourth grade level. And for those of you who are not able to see the screen, that kind of looks like the monitor when you unplug the body in a hospital, right? So <laughs> the, the results since 1992 um, have been pretty flat. More worrisome, though, underneath that average, there are alarming gaps um, between different groups of kids. That is true, as Natalie said, between low-income kids and upper-income kids, but it is also true as you can see here, between kids of color and, uh, and white kids. And we did, in fact, in the early NCLB days, actually make a little progress in that. You can see in the early two, 2000s some improvement for all groups of kids. 
But since that time, the lines have flattened out and we've got widening um, gaps um, between different groups of young Americans now. And you don't have to look at this chart very long to, to see the pattern. Uh, just for those of you in the room, wherever you see red, those are the kids about whom we need to worry a lot. They are performing at the below basic level. That means they're not even close to having the skills and knowledge they need to succeed in the years ahead. Green kids, by contrast, are doing just fine. Yellow someplace in between. So look for a moment at Latino and African-American kids. As, as, as you can see there, you've got roughly in more than half of African-American kids and close to half of Latino kids trapped at that below basic level. Um, and only, you know, essentially less than one in five um, at the proficient level. Very, very different results than you see for white and Asian students. <clears throat> Unfortunately, results at the eighth grade level, not much better. Flat achievement over time and alarming gaps between different groups of kids. With results at the below basic level for Latino and African-American kids, about twice as many trapped at that, that level uh, as white and Asian kids. Meanwhile, fewer than half as many at the proficient level. So we have a pretty scary situation uh, when you look at the data nationally. But if you look at those numbers and you feel a little sick in the pit of your stomach about what that suggests about the future, what you need to know living here in California is things are worse here. <laughs> so as scary as those numbers are, the numbers in California are actually worse. Now, they used to be a lot worse but um, thank you, Bill Honig, for admitting a, a, a mistake uh, when you were a super, uh, state superintendent of schools and for a woman by the name of Marion Joseph, who like pushed him into acknowledging that problem. California has gained on the nation um, pretty steadily in recent years. That said, at both the fourth grade level and, uh, and at the eighth grade level, there are still alarming gaps between different groups of young Californians. And you see those numbers quite clearly here. And as you can see, they're quite a bit worse for Latino and African-American students in particular than, uh, than they are at the national level, with about almost two-thirds of African-American eighth graders trapped at that below basic level. Meanwhile, fewer than one in 10 proficient uh, and similar, but not quite as uh, frightening numbers for Latino students. And, and, you know, no matter how you think about the future, whether you think about the economics of that, whether you think about the implications of that for our democracy, or when you think about social cohesion, those kinds of differences are by no means a good omen for the future. Now, it won't surprise you to know, especially given what Natalie said about the relationship between content and, uh, and reading, that California kids don't do so well in other subjects um, either. When you look at data on fourth grade science, for example... Uh, California fourth graders do better only than Mississippi uh, in fourth grade. It's a little better than Mississippi, but, but tied with Nevada for second worst in the country. 
when you look at eighth grade science, uh, the numbers are slightly better. I think California is third or fourth from the bottom. You beat actually Mississippi, Alabama, and New Mexico. But again, uh, dwelling near the bottom of the country. And when you look at data on mathematics uh, and writing, um, pretty scary numbers as well. So again, whether you think about the economic future of, of kids, whether you think about democracy or you think about social cohesion, those are pretty scary numbers. Now, um, I don't, I don't want to suggest that there's an easy answer to any of this uh, or that there's one single panacea. Everybody in this room knows it's much more complicated than that. But I have, and I hope we'll spend some time on sort of what are some of the obvious next steps here. But I have spent enough time in enough, in the backs of enough classrooms, especially in high poverty schools, both in California and nationally, um, and seeing the kind of sort of vacuous, vapid assignments that Natalie talks about. You kind of write about your favorite season type of assignment. <clears throat> And I've spent enough time talking with teachers who are exhausted by trying to make up all the curriculum, make up what they're going to teach tomorrow, especially with five different preps, um, to, to believe with every fiber of my being that a content-rich curriculum is essential and an absolutely essential part of the strategy. I mean, very simply, knowledge is power. The people have that part right, but we are systematically denying some kids access to that power. Good. All yours. So um, I'd like to take a few steps back from the K-12 picture and really look at what's happening with teachers when they go through their pre-service training, when they go to a school of education. My organization, um, one might say, is a bit obsessed by what is or is not happening with teachers during the course of their training, especially elementary teachers, uh, where we find incredible amount of evidence that um, the schools of education are letting teachers down. So we're talking a lot about kids tonight and what they don't get. Um, I feel equally passionate about what teachers aren't getting um, and they think they think they're going to go into their training program and learn how to teach reading. Um, and their chances of of getting that is about 20, 25 percent um, of programs that will actually teach them how to teach reading. And um, so I'm going to walk you through a little bit of our data on uh, what we've learned from we actually look at the reading courses that um, every elementary teacher has to take. On average, there's about three courses in reading. Uh, for those of you who are teachers in the audience, this will probably be familiar to you. So there's plenty of time to teach some of the things we're talking about. But um, what we're seeing is an absence of what teachers need. So uh, just very quickly, I want you to look at this first chart to show you what the American public thinks schools, what the job of schools is. And they looked at a whole host of factors. 
that um, that might be the job of, of of schools, including things like making their kids happy and um, you know getting them ready for the workforce. But what was the first and foremost important thing that the American public thinks schools ought to do, and that's to teach their kids how to read and write. So uh, I think that's very telling, and I think. Everyone, like Natalie's own experience, everyone assumes that is what is happening in schools. Okay, so um, I've just shown up one sample of what we've learned um, in, uh, in doing a scan of all the reading coursework for 1,200 programs across the country. And this is the this is actually the more optimistic slide. This is actually the better news slide. I, I deliberately kept out the one with, which was worse news, and that's when you look at graduate programs to, to prepare to become an elementary teacher. This is an undergrad program, and um, about 37% of them actually just refer to what it takes to learn how to read. So this is a little bit going backwards. This is a little bit into the decoding element of what Natalie's talking about. But, um, but the, there is a clear science of what would help benefit kids to learn how to read. The, we could go from a rate of reading failure that, excuse me, I'm getting, I've gotten a sore throat from my one-year-old grandsons. Um, uh, the rate of reading failure from about 60 to 70 percent, depending on which state you're in. And California is about 60, I believe. Um, uh, kids learn how to read. Um, and then um, we could get that down to about 5 to 10% rate, rate of reading failure. So 30% not reading down to about 5 to 10 if we adopt these methods. So that's, um, that's just very telling in itself. So then we look at what, uh, let's look at comprehension. So this is where things go really badly for teachers. Um, they get into programs and they are given a list of courses to take that will build their content knowledge to be aligned with what they're going to have to teach in elementary grades. And what we find is that almost no institution in the entire country directs teachers to the coursework that is actually relevant to what they're going to one day teach. So you'll see that um, in science and social studies, there are plenty of programs that might um, require teachers to take a science and social studies class. But what we find is they get a long list of electives to pick from. And so they might have a list for their history elective. They can take the American Revolution. They can take U.S. history through World War II. They, take a lot, they can take a lot of courses that sound like what they probably got in high school. But now they're in college, and they can take courses instead of on the American Revolution, they can take a course on the sexual revolution in the 1960s. Now, if you're 18 years old, which course are you going to pick? <laughs> and nobody says to you there's going to be a test at the end of your preparation in which you're going to have to show that you know something about the American Revolution. You just kind of blithely pick these courses that have nothing to do with what you are going to one day teach. Um, and this is a problem across the country because higher ed does not think it is their job to provide teachers with basic knowledge. So who is the biggest loser here? 
kids who have gone to substandard K-12 education. So if you're a black or brown person in the United States, your chances of having gotten a high-quality K-12 education are far less than if you're a white, privileged, affluent person. So who is going to suffer the most? That black or brown teacher? And then in turn, the, the kids that they, t that they will one day teach. So this is what we're up against. Um, I did do a little bit more digging into our data on this last slide to show you that when we look at whether um, we look in, at whether programs teach something about comprehension, and we find that actually 68% of them do teach something about comprehension. But then we dig in a little bit further, and this is I want to make sure that you understand that the the number the the small bubble at the bottom is a sample. We did not do this for all our programs, but a representative sample. And when we looked at what's happening in this in the programs that claim that that we actually test do teach comprehension, less than half of them actually teach about the importance of background knowledge. So what they're hearing about is, again, exactly what Natalie, I'm so sorry, uh, what Natalie's been saying about, about their being told that you build comprehension through skills. So uh, we think that there is a positive way forward by actually making this transparent, by exposing what programs are and are not doing um, so that teachers understand what they're getting into when they go to a particular program, um, but also to put pressure on programs to say, look, this is, this is essential stuff and you're not giving teachers what they need. Thank you. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background from uh, about where I, I come from and, and kind of why I'm up here. Um, I, so I taught uh, in East L.A. At, at a school called Kipraises Academy. Um, it is a magnificent school. Um, we are 90% uh, free and reduced lunch, 60% uh, EL, and yet um, we scored in the top 2% of all schools in, in California, um, according to SBAC. Um, and yet... When we would do writing instruction and I would have our, our students um, try to elaborate on, on their writing, like it was so difficult to get them to just continue to, uh, to write about a topic over extended periods without following a formula. And I kept wondering why, right? And then we started to follow those same kids in the grades after us, and I started to see that there was a, slowly, there was a, slutty, a slow and steady decline in their achievement. For the students who continued on doing excellent work, they got scholarships to go to some of the highest performing schools in all of uh, Los Angeles. And when they came back to us, they were like, Mr. Martinez, like, like the knowledge that we have is different than the kids from these affluent neighborhoods, right? So they've worked their butts off and they are at the 99 percentile according to map testing. And they have all of these skills and yet there's a knowledge piece that's just not there. So I started to dig a little bit deeper into my own teaching and said, okay, I'm doing a really good job of teaching all these skills. And um, the, the team that I taught on in fourth grade, uh, shout them out, um, Natalie Dudar, Chris Hoffman, and, and Aaron Durham, like just like incredible educators. And we were working our tails off. And yet, like there was this gap, right? Even for students who were really high achieving. And so we started to see that, that the, it was vocabulary and it was this critical thinking piece. And so like, let's teach critical thinking in isolation. Mm -hmm. But... And this is where we're, we're kind of getting into this, like, what is, like, in the age, this is a question that comes from the audience, in the age of advanced truth decay, 
<laughs> do you know, like, how do we teach critical thinking and objectivity? And I, and I think this critical thinking piece, like we think about teaching critical thinking in isolation. So Natalie, can you tackle that? Yeah, I mean, there's research showing that um, the more you know about a topic, the better, not only are, the better able are you to understand a passage about it, but the better able you are to think about it critically. You really cannot teach critical thinking in the abstract. So what teachers need to get training in is not how to teach critical thinking, but like, okay, you're teaching, you know, the myth of Daedalus and Icarus, or you're teaching the civil war. How do you foster critical thinking about those topics? And I think, you know, the best we can hope for, so these things are not skills like riding a bike or playing tennis that, you know, you you just practice them and you get good at them. So what with critical thinking, I think the best we can hope for is that we foster a habit of critical thinking by getting kids to think critically about the information that we're giving them. And they still won't be able to think critically about something they know nothing about, but at least they'll, if they know something about a topic, they'll ask themselves the right questions. As those kids were doing with the Diwali. Yeah. 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 I'll give you just a quick example. Like we we taught our kids um, about perspectives from, uh, the Native Americans during the Revolutionary War time and from the, the, the black perspective in Africa, uh, during the Revolutionary War time. And then we read the Declaration of Independence. And then they had to think critically about all men were created equal, right? Mm-hmm. And the critical thinking that happened as a result of the, that background knowledge like just lifted the topic of conversation. Um, and that kind of gets me into this, this other question, which I think comes up a lot, which is, um, and, and this is another question from the audience, is uh, we hear a lot about like gaps, right? Which can be deficit mindset. Um, How do we build student knowledge that, that they already have? And so almost like whose knowledge gets positioned into the forefront, right? So when we're thinking about knowledge building and we're thinking about being critical of that knowledge, how do we balance like a knowledge building curriculum while also giving voice to certain knowledge has been prized over other knowledges. Well, I think the good news is that we've, we've been wasting a lot of time on these largely meaningless (laughs) comprehension (laughs) skills and strategies. If we stop doing that, we have time to both introduce kids to cultures other than their own and introduce them to information about their own heritage, their own culture. Um, And I think all kids need both. But I also think, um, and so, you know, sometimes people talk about mirrors and windows. So mirrors, they see themselves, their own culture and ethnicity reflected, and windows um, are, you know, they're looking at other cultures and ethnicities, et cetera. But I do think we also need to consider what is it that we want kids to be able to do when they leave high school. And I would say one of the things we probably want them to do is to be able to read and understand a newspaper, to be able to follow what the issues are in an election so they can exercise their responsibilities as citizens. Um, And I think we also, if we we want these kids to, to go to college and thrive, we don't want them to be the only kid in the class who's never heard of Winston Churchill or who's never heard of Stonehenge, or who's never heard of Alice in Wonderland. And those are all things I have read in memoirs by first-generation college students. You know, it was not a pleasant experience to be in a college class and be the only student who didn't know these things. And I I do worry that it's, 
it's fears about the fights that take place in who's in deciding whose knowledge to privilege that keep us from doing this at all. Um, Certainly true for history, especially for history, but really in terms of literature is like whose literature gets advanced. But that's I mean, I think the, the process in New York that you write about so nicely, Natalie, which sort of started with a lot of the core knowledge stuff, but then brought in more expertise and lots of teacher involvement. So the end result was much more diverse than the starting. And that's mm-hmm. I mean having these fights is an important thing to do. Um, and, and being, but being paralyzed by the fear of who's going to lose in this process is ending up hurting a lot of kids. So a lot of this comes down to, um, like it's another responsibility on teachers. So how, like teachers are already working extraordinarily hard. Um, how can we, Bring, this in, bring them into this conversation in a way that honors them um, and engages them in these realities? Well, I guess that one falls to me. Uh, you know, I, I think that there, it was very interesting. I heard Natalie do a book talk in, where I live in Baltimore, and there was a teacher there who said, are you asking us to give up what we're really passionate about? Because, you know... Are you suggesting there's some sort of sequence of knowledge that I'm going to have to teach and I'm not going to get to teach what I love any longer? And, you know, that that was a really interesting question to me because I think teachers do um, very much uh, enjoy um, teaching what they're passionate about. And it's, too, is not the main idea. It's something the teacher knows something about. Um, I think there is room for, as I said, I don't, as you said about, there's room for both. I do think that that teachers need to understand that kids need a sequenced knowledge curriculum. They do need to build on that. But that doesn't mean that teachers will be shut out of doing what they love and are passionate about, um, you know, it's it's a very it's a very tough sell to um, to put forward ideas that would lead to major changes in how we deliver instruction. But having seen many teachers undertake this journey and go the very difficult mile of 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 adopting a more sequenced curriculum of knowledge. They, I've never heard a teacher once say to me that they thought that this was a bad idea, that they didn't think it was in the best interest of their kids, that it didn't make learning more interesting. Um, my, my own big bugaboo is that we make school so boring for kids. And... <laughs> Teachers are just as bored as the kids are. <laughs> and so, I mean, I just, uh, if any of you have ever had the privilege of going to a core knowledge classroom where it's all about knowledge and seeing not only the kids, but the teacher genuinely excited by, the, by that content, yes, there is a hump to get over. Yes, it's, it's not easy, but I think... Um, I think you found watching Wit and Wisdom that teachers were very nervous well, about it. Really, uh, yes, but I, 
I mean, I never really was in a wit and wisdom classroom. My, my, the classroom that I followed was a core knowledge language arts classroom. But, you know, I think I've had several teachers say to me, I wish I could spend more time on social studies and science because the kids really love that stuff. But I have to teach them the skills that, that that's what they need for the tests. And I have a line in the book that I, I say, like, it's, it's as though kids are clamoring for spinach and broccoli, and we've been insisting that they get a steady diet of donuts. <laughs> because it's actually what's good for them is what they really want, what they really love. And I think when teachers, you know, see how their kids are responding to a focus on content and knowledge building, then... You know, even though the transition may be difficult in the beginning, um, they say, you know, I'm never going back to what I was doing before. Right. And, and I think actually the bigger problem are district administrators. You know, they're not in the classroom. They're not dying of boredom. And they're not having to confront the lack of success. And, um, you know, I think that's true across the board. The, the district administrators can divorce themselves from the reality of what teachers are facing day on a daily basis. What are some of the places that we can look to that are exemplars of this work? Well, um, I think, you know, uh, there are different cities now that are adopting um, for Baltimore, for example, has adopted the wit and wisdom curriculum kindergarten through eighth grade. And, you know, it's not enough to just adopt a curriculum. You also really need to provide support and coaching and time for teachers because it, it's often a big adjustment. And it looks to me like Baltimore is really doing a pretty good job of that. I mean, you know, it won't happen overnight. Detroit has adopted uh, the EL um, education curriculum. I don't know as much about that. And then, you know, I followed a, a school in a charter network in D.C. that had adopted core knowledge and now has adopted wit and wisdom for the upper grades. So it's being done all over. And I would say the the one place we can look to at a state level as a possible model is, and this may surprise people because it's not considered to be, you know, in the vanguard in terms of education, but the state of Louisiana mm -hmm. has been doing some really interesting and thoughtful things. Um, one, as I mentioned earlier, they've created their own curriculum in English language arts and, so and social studies, and that enabled them. Um, and they haven't required every district to use that curriculum, but they've, they basically, they've educated the educators and the administrators and something like 80% of classrooms are using they that, content, that content focused curriculum beginning in elementary school. And the most recent innovation that they're, they're experimenting with, and this is the final, maybe not the final piece of the puzzle, but this is an important piece of the puzzle, is that they are experimenting with a new kind of standardized reading comprehension test that instead of testing kids on like what they happen to know, maybe, tests them on things that are actually in the curriculum that they've actually been taught in both the English language arts and social studies curriculum, which not only helps level the playing field for kids, but also gives teachers an incentive to focus on that content rather than the skills they think are being tested. I mean, wouldn't you think we'd have a whole different story about um, the testing accountability movement if teachers thought that they were going to be held accountable for what they actually taught yeah. rather than this generic state test, yeah. the, the content of which they had no idea what was going to be on it. And so, you know, 
everything was up for grabs. And 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 that addressing um, sort of issues in the assessment system is super important to do early in this process. I mean, because one of the big worries I have is that you have a place like Louisiana who's been getting a lot of attention for this work they're doing and the new NAEP results come up and they're flat. Uh, and that happens at the school level, at the district level all the time. Um, and these, this kind of work gets abandoned when there are too many signals like that. So thinking hard about about what kind of tests need to replace the ones we have now, uh, what we need to do differently in the early elementary grades so we make sure the, the decoding pieces get done, but how to shift towards more content-focused assessments in the other grades so we don't kill this movement even as it's just building. I think that also gets to another comment uh, from a question from the audience, which is um, generally reading comprehension tests um, have been uh, lambasted for uh, for privileging, you know, white middle class um, knowledge, right? And so it, it becomes really a a, a cultural um, a signpost uh, more than it does for actual reading reading achievement. And so that's another way to you know to to level that playing field. Um, all right, Kate. So if you had your way, how would Ed Schools tackle this issue? <laughs> you know, the job that the the job that the Ed Schools have to do isn't really all that complicated. You know, it, it's simply making sure, um, you know, it's not like they have to create new room in their schedules. They've got all these courses already, but they just pay no attention to them. Um, and, and, and so there needs more direction about the kind of content knowledge building that teachers get. Um, on their own because they can't be expected to go out and teach about things, the War of 1812, when they think, you know, that it happened after World War II. I mean, it just it doesn't work that way. So, um, you know, we, we, need, um, we need to level the playing field at the college level before teachers get in the classroom. And, um, you know, this is not all about I, – I, the only thing I'd push back on, this is not all about white – privileged uh, knowledge. This is about um, how the world works. And that's going to that's gonna include an awful lot of topics that I didn't get when I was growing up because I did get the white privileged curriculum. But we can, we can do better than that. But, it is, but if we want to give all kids access to a middle-class life, to going to colleges that are selective, we have to be realistic about what they what they need to succeed. And if I could add just a couple of things, I mean, one, one is on the the knowledge question, and you know, whose knowledge? You know, a lot of what we're talking about is knowledge. I think we can all agree that kids should be learning. For example, and I've seen this myself because I've tutored some kids in high poverty high schools, but I've talked to a lot of teachers in high poverty high schools and they've told me, you know, they have kids at all different levels of ability, but it is not uncommon for kids to, in high school, not to know the difference between a, a city and a state or a city and a country, not to know what Europe is, not to be able to find the United States on a map of the world, not to be able to find the place where they live on a map of the United States, not because they can't learn these things, but because they have not been taught these things. And so th that is a kind of knowledge that is, you know, not owned by anyone. And, and it's pretty basic. Um, the other thing I'd say about ed schools is that, you know, in other, most other developed countries, there's a national curriculum mm -hmm which uh, 
among other things, enables uh, education, schools of education to predict you know, what is that you're going to be teaching third grade? Okay, this is what you're going to be teaching. We're going to make sure that you know this stuff and how to teach it. We do not have that luxury. We, you know, we, we cannot have a national curriculum in this country. But states and districts can adopt or encourage content-focused curriculum curricula. And they, you know, if, if there is a school of education that tends to send its graduates into a particular district like Baltimore, say, and we know the curriculum that Baltimore has adopted and what knowledge is going to be covered at each grade level, um, you know, that is one way to get around this problem. So, But I would argue that's the harder sell. Because people think that um, what teachers learn about how to teach reading when they're in a, their pre-service program is that they're taught whole language, like the opposite of, of, of scientifically-based reading research. When in truth, for the most part, they're not taught anything. <laughs> so it isn't, you know, it is, it, it, when you say to the programs, why aren't you teaching, you know, at least, at least stand your ground, teach something, <laughs> They say all learning is contextual. We do not want to prejudice our future teachers about what, the, what it is they need to know because I, we don't want them to go into a classroom and prejudge how their kids will learn how to read. So the, the, the result is they say to 21-year-old kids, you decide how to teach reading without the benefit of any experience, without reading any research. Develop your own philosophy. Build up your own philosophy. (laughs) That is the most common approach to teaching reading in the United States right now. We have a long way to go. (laughs) What what can teachers do? Like, how can teachers uh, and, and administrators, how can they build their own knowledge base around these topics? So um, there's a nonprofit called Ed Reports that, that um, vets and, and judges, uh, criteria, or judges curriculum based upon a certain rigorous criteria. Um, Louisiana Believes does something very similar. Um, what can, where can teachers go and, and administrators go and, and even the general public and, and um, parents go to educate themselves on these issues? Uh, well, I think one thing that teachers can do is, yes, they could read my book. (laughs) Thank you for me holding that up. Um, but there's a lot of activity on Twitter around education. Um, and I, you know, I've seen a lot of tweets from teachers saying I've learned so much just, you know, from Twitter and the links I followed, um, on Twitter, there is a, a conference called research ed that, um, is a, doesn't, you don't have to be a teacher to go, but it's really designed for, te- for teachers to connect them with cognitive scientists and, and just sort of the, the, the science of learning. And that is, is based in the UK. They have conferences all over the world now. And in fact, I, on Saturday, I'm going to be speaking at one in Philadelphia. Um, so, you know, I think there are resources out there, um, but I do think it's hard for an individual that's, teacher. That's the point or an individual parent to really do much about this situation because knowledge building is a gradual cumulative process. And there, you know, teachers can do something in one year, one school year. But, you know, if, if the kid then goes into a skills and strategies classroom the following year, 
um, you know, the, the knowledge building process is going to be interrupted. So ideally, I think teachers and parents need to sort of band together and convince the people making the decisions about what curriculum to adopt to um, introduce them to this, these ideas, start talking about this stuff. Um, it's not going to happen overnight. I have a simpler approach to do what good teachers have done for eons, shut the door and teach. <laughs> well, that too. Yeah. Um, but as I said, that may not really be enough. No. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, it's, it's wrong. I mean, when you think about what happens in other countries versus what happens here, we have always left the burden on individual teachers way more than happens anyplace else. And it's just, it's just wrong to do that. Uh, and it, it results in horribly uneven um, uh, uh, opportunities and outcomes, right? So, but but I do I do think um, I've seen before the power of teams of teachers at a school or in a district, starting by educating themselves. And I think Natalie's book is a great way to start. But extending out from there, Dan Willingham's columns in the AFT, uh, American Educator Magazine, are fabulous. He's, he's great on this subject as well. Looking at ed reports, looking at what Louisiana is doing, the Engage New York. So there's a lot of materials out there. And the nice thing, and we know this from both from experience but also from research, is that uh, yes, it would be easier if teachers learned some of the science and history and stuff they need to know to do this right in college, but you can also learn it by learning how to teach new curriculum. And that when you have powerful new stuff, whether it's wit and wisdom or core knowledge or EL, that the process of teachers working together to teach that new stuff can deepen their own knowledge as well. And there's a ton of research about how much that works. So, so it's possible for teachers to help make this revolution happen. It just can't, can't happen one by one. It's just but it is going to come from teachers, I believe. I do not think it's going to come top down. Yeah. So the audience has teachers, um, hopefully policymakers, parents, taxpayers, um, what actions can people in this audience do with this information um, from the micro school level to the macro level, even the policy level is. Well, I, I mean, I would say the first step is to just, first of all, understand why what we've been doing hasn't been working and start talking about this problem. Um, as I said, I wrote the book to get it into the public conversation. And once I figured out what was going on, I began to see just about everything in education through a different lens. It makes it very hard for me to communicate sometimes with others in the <laughs> education world because we're not seeing this through the same lens. But, um, you know, I think... Uh, the book is helping. I, I am getting requests for speaking engagements from places I never thought I would hear from, um, people who have been part of the pro problem I've identified. Um, so I think talking about it really can help. Um, maybe others have well, more better data, better data tools. I heard uh, Marco Goldberg, who's here in the audience, from, who's doing a terrific job in, in Oakland on on really um, trying to get the, the district to think about 
how we teach decoding uh, differently. And she was showing the difference between um, the kids' results in reading um, after using um, the Fontas and Pinnell assessment, which is not scientifically based, and which results in, what was it, 85% of all kids were doing great. And so they would, you know, the teachers had that affirmation and like, we're doing the right thing. And then um, Margaret put in the Dibbles assessment, which is very good. And all of a sudden, the kids are reading at 30, 32%. Um, so I think that looking for the right data tools to sell your story is, is part of the solution. And yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the last 10, 20 years about data-driven education, and that is perceived to be a good thing. And it can be a good thing, but it does depend on whether the data is telling you something (laughs) valuable. And so if the data is telling you, oh, these kids need more work on comparing and contrasting, or they need more work on determining main idea, you know, that's not helpful. Um, So you have to be careful about the data you're looking at. So this is very uh, ELA-centric. Is there any way that we can extrapolate these ideas into either the high school level or areas like math instruction? Well, I, there is something I had didn't get a chance to talk about, um, about the high school level, um, which is, and, and it really is not just about the high school level, but um, it's about writing and writing instruction. And, you know, I said knowledge is like Velcro. Um, well, Writing is potentially such a powerful lever of building knowledge that it can substitute for missing Velcro. So if you have high school students (laughs) who are missing a lot of background knowledge, if you get them to write about what they are learning, it it can be extremely powerful. It, it, It taps into some psychological phenomena that have been studied in other contexts, like retrieving information that you have slightly forgotten, explaining something to somebody else in your own words. Those are very powerful boosts to comprehension and retention. The problem with writing um, is that it is very, very difficult. It's probably the most difficult thing we ask kids to do. And we just keep asking them to just write, write at length, write an essay, you know, um, and if kids are inexperienced writers, that's going to be so overwhelming that they won't get, they won't learn to write and they won't get those knowledge building benefits. So, and this is, um, relates to another book that I co-authored called The Writing Revolution, which sort of sets out a method like the one I'm describing. But if kids cannot yet write a good sentence, that is where instruction needs to begin, no matter what grade level they're at. And it modulates that the cognitive load that they are experiencing from being asked to write. So if, it, if, if you modulate the cognitive load and you ground writing instruction in the content of the curriculum, I think that can go a long way towards helping kids who are coming into high school with knowledge gaps. And it also works for any subject, including math. Um, you know, it's, it should not just be the province of the English teacher to teach writing. All teachers should be seeing themselves as writing teachers and what they may be resistant at first, but when they see how powerful it can be in helping them teach and helping kids learn, then they embrace it. So we have about five minutes left. Um, is there any closing remarks that you would like to leave the audience with? Um, well, I, I would say 
two things. One is I do think we need a sense of urgency about this um, because, you know, there's all this talk now about social emotional learning and growth mindset, and that's fine, but we are undermining those efforts by the way we're teaching reading comprehension. <laughs> uh, we are doing untold damage to kids' psyches and their social emotional well-being and their sense of what they them what they are capable of and their self-image. So I do feel a tremendous sense of urgency, but we also have to be aware that this is not something that we can change overnight. And we have to be careful not to be too reliant on looking for quick results, especially in the terms of standardized reading scores, because sometimes the things that can boost elementary reading scores are planting the seeds of failure in high school. Sometimes you, you, you concentrate on drilling kids in main idea and maybe, you know, third, fourth, even fifth grade standardized reading tests, they, you may see a bump, uh, but... If you're not building their knowledge, that bump will dissipate by the time they get to high school, if not before. Uh, you know, uh, I had the privilege a couple of months ago to go to Montgomery, Alabama, to uh, the Legacy Museum. In fact, all my whole organization went along with our board. And I don't know if any of you have had the opportunity to go to the Legacy Museum, but it is an unbelievable experience. Um, and it changed changed me to the core. Um, and it, what it did was in a way that I'd never really experienced um, is that very um, direct line from slavery to lynching to uh, mass incarceration. And, um, and I don't think I'd have properly appreciated that it is an unbroken line, that, that one led to the other and to the other. And so the, the museum does a very good job of making that, driving that point home. And I'm thinking about all the different things. And the only thing at the museum are the voices and the words of people who have been um, persecuted and the folks who did the persecution. And I've been, uh, I've been reflecting on this because I'm about to write something about it. And, and the one thing that wasn't in this museum, I'd like to add a little annex to the museum. And that is um, the, uh, the, this country's unwillingness to um, teach kids who are black and brown how to read and give them the ticket they need to, uh, to break that line. And um, I do believe that, that our failure to embrace um, methods for teaching reading, including access to knowledge, um, have actually been as responsible as any one thing in our century, at least, um, and certainly a good deal of the last century, um, in sort of providing, um, in, in terms of the one thing that we had the ability to change um, that was possible at the classroom level, we have chosen not to do. And I find that um, that just destroys me. That, and I'm, I'm kind of getting, I'm, I'm kind of at the point now where I just don't feel a whole lot of patience for what's not happening. I almost feel like this is deliberate. This is not. This is not just because people don't like change. This is deliberate, and that's not a very optimistic way to end an evening. Mm -hmm. 
Our thanks to Natalie Wexler, uh, education journalist and author of The Knowledge Gap, The Hidden Cause of Americans' Broken Education System and How to Fix It, as well as her previous book, The Writing Revolution, A Guide to Advancing Thinking Through Writing in All Subjects and Grades. Our thanks to Katie Haycock, founder and president emeritus of the Education Trust, and our thanks to Kate Walsh, president of the National Council of Teacher Quality. We also want to thank our audience, both in person and those of you online. And we want to remind everyone that there's copies of Natalie Wexler's book um, that are on sale outside this room, and she'll be pleased to sign them following the program. I am Joshua Martinez, and now this program, the Commonwealth Club, is adjourned.